Amen. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 7. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for uh, several months and continue to go through it. And uh, we're at a uh, kind of pivotal point in the Gospel of Matthew. As you recall, we've come through the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to its conclusion now. Uh, toward the end, last week, uh, we looked at, at the uh, verses 7 through 12. And the week before that, we looked at verses 1 through 6. And what they were talking about is how we react to one another, how we treat one another. And verses 1 through 6 zeroed in on what we should not do. And we talked about how we should not have a critical, cynical, judging, judgmental, self-righteous, uh, condemning spirit. And we talked, that's what God says. He says, judge not, that you be not judged. And doesn't make that we doesn't mean that we don't make judgment calls on theology and doctrine and certain issues. We don't have the discernment to know between truth and error, good and evil. He's not talking about that. He's not saying we just get in a big circle and and fold, uh, uh, hold hands and sing kumbaya. He's not so talking about that. He's saying you have to be able to discern between right and wrong, between a good religion and a false religion, a divine religion and a, and a man-made religion. And remember, he's talking mainly here in the presence of the Pharisees who were very self-righteous. And then in verses 7 to 12, we looked at what he talked about what we should do. And uh, it kind of summarized it in verse 12. He says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And we looked at that principle and we said that's kind of a reverse of what the world says. The reverse says that the world basically tells us that, you know, hey, what, what, what comes around goes around, so you better be careful. And it's always done in the negative. A lot of Middle Eastern religions, you know, you got bad karma. If you go out and do bad things, well, bad things will happen to you. Well, Jesus, the revolutionary teacher that he was, he took that and he put a positive spin on it. He, he said, this is the way this should be taught. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Irregardless of how they treat you. See, it's not what you get from somebody. That's not what should decide how we treat someone. But unfortunately, that's how it is a lot of times. And so he went through the, those verses and he showed us the only way that you're ever going to be able to treat men the way that you want them to treat you without any expecting anything in return is to go to God because it's a God-given thing. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own flesh. And so that's why he goes through in verses 7 through 11 and he talks about asking and giving and, and knocking and, and asking God for wisdom on all those things. And he relates the father that he's not a father that's going to, if we ask for bread, he's not going to give us a stone because we have a loving father. So God's not going to ask us to do something that we can't do. That would be cruel. We don't serve a cruel God. We serve a holy, loving, righteous God. And so now in verses 13 to 14, I just want to read these for us as we look at our text this morning. And we're going to get through part of this. But he says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And this morning I want to ask you the question, which road are you on? Which gate are you entering? Throughout chapter 7, this Sermon on the Mount is coming basically all the way back from chapter 5, chapter 6, finally chapter 7. He's reaching the apex of his sermon here. He's reaching the climax of his message. And his whole points, all the, all the points that he's made up until now in the Sermon on the Mount, the idea that we should have a, a right view about God, who He is. We should have a right view about His Word and about the Law and the Prophets. We should have a right view about our religion. He talked about giving and fasting. We should have a right view about all those things, about how we treat one another. And now He brings it all to this final conclusion. And it's a very, you have to understand, it's a very provocative statement that the Lord is making here to those that are listening to him. It's the point that he's emphasizing in the first part of this sermon. He goes right back full circle. He brings the whole sermon to a climax here, and he's, he's forcing us to make a decision. That's his point. In verses 13 to 14, he talks about, you'll see there are two gates. 
that bring an individual to two roads, that lead the individual to two destinations that are populated by two totally different crowds. And the Lord focuses his attention on this inevitable decision that has to be made regarding what he has already spoken about on the Sermon on the Mount. He's given him all this information, and now he brings it all to a climax, and he says, now what are you going to do? Someone said this, all of life concentrates on man at the crossroads. All of life concentrates on man at the crossroads. And that is true. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing here this morning. He's bringing us to the crossroads of life. You stop and you think, from the time we're, we're old enough to make independent decisions, life becomes a, just a, 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 a matter of constant decision-making. Every day, every moment, we're making decisions. We decide what time we're going to get up. We decide what we're going to eat. We decide where we're going to go. We decide what we're going to do for the week. Jack and Cynthia were sharing with us on it was Friday night, or Saturday, one of those nights, that Sunday night is their night as a couple to sit down and look at their calendar and say, okay, this next week, when are we going to touch base? Throughout this next week, when are we going to touch base so we're not two ships passing in the night? It's a good principle. You have to make a decision to do that. Every day we're making decisions. And it starts even when we're young. My little grand, grandson Mason, he's six now, first grade. This two weeks ago had a bad week in school. There they get little green, green smiley faces if they do good. Well, he wasn't bringing home green smiley faces. And mom was not pleased. And mom kind of goes to the altar, you know, other extreme and say, you, have, you know, this, this is not a good thing. And so she's thinking maybe so. So she's calling the teacher every day. What happened today? And every day, hey, Mason's not a bad kid, bright kid. He just gets bored. And, you know, we have him sitting on the carpet there and he's in the back and he just starts spinning around. We tell him to stop and he just in his own little world. He keeps spinning around. So he gets a sad face for that. Nothing disrespectful, but he's not being obedient. And he's making a decision not to be obedient. So Crystal had to sit Mason down and say, look, this is up to you. This is going away. This is going away. This is going away. And you have to earn them back. And it's up to you when you get them back. But until I see three smiley faces in a row from your school, your privileges are gone. This is a six-year-old little boy. But he understood the the decision-making process. She gave him kind of a good illustration once she found out that he was spinning around the carpet. She said, Mason, think of this. When they tell you to sit down on the carpet, just think, and these are the words that that she used, just think that you have glue on your butt. (laughs) Okay. And it worked. He came home from school. Look at my smiley face. And you know what, Mom? I had glue on my butt today, and I sat right there. And he did that for five days straight. But he made a decision to do the right thing. See, we, we cross roads all the way through life. So it's fair to say that life can, consists of man at the crossroads. Every day we're making decisions whether to do right or wrong, whether to listen to truth or error. Ultimately and inevitably, there's one final choice that you must make. And that, that final choice has to deal with where you will spend eternity. And that's what Jesus is focusing on right here in our text. That's what the Lord speaks of here in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. He's talking about not just some daily choice. He's talking about the ultimate choice. We're not talking about here, you know, the, the TV show Deal or No Deal. We're not talking about that kind of choice. We're talking about a choice that has significant greater consequences. God has always made an effort to bring men to making the ultimate choice. Throughout the Bible, we see this. There's always an option. There's always a choice before men. And we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in, 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 in God, the, the, the predestination of so We believe all those doctrines we see in Ephesians and Peter and other places. But we also believe that this is a choice that's set before men. How those two come together, I don't understand it. 
But the ultimate choice is what God is most concerned about. And you stop and you think back through me. I think I listed them there in your, your outline in, in Deuteronomy 30. God set before the children of Israel through Moses. He said, I have set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your seed may live. God gave the people of Israel the ultimate choice. Life and good, death and evil. He called them to make a decision, one or the other. In the book of Joshua, 24, 15. Joshua, the, the people had followed him into the promised land and the Israelites were given a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, who they served. And then Joshua says, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve who? We're going to serve the Lord. Made a decision. Jeremiah 21, 8. God told Jeremiah unto this People, thou shalt say, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Elijah, up on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.21. Althea, you love this text. You know, he called for the Israelites to make a decision. And he asked, how long will you kind of falter between these two opinions? You can't sit on the fence, is what he was saying. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal and your false gods, then follow them. The ultimate choice is in view here. And Jesus, even over in, in, in John chapter 6, you can turn over there. John chapter 6, you see the ultimate choice emphasized by Christ. There was many people following him here in this text in John 6. You can look there at verses 60 and 61. You see that it's just implied that a lot of people followed Jesus and they were calling uh, themselves his disciples. And then in verse 66, Jesus said this. Jesus said... Uh, from, the time, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They turned their back on him. And they didn't follow him anymore. And verse 67 and 68 says, Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will you also go away? <laughs> then Simon Peter answered, I just love Peter, Lord, where are we going to go? <laughs> who, who else is there? You have the words of eternal life. See, there's, there's a lot of people that are searching for things in their life today. They're searching for that, that, you know, some people say, well, there's a hole in their heart. Well, however you want to describe it. And they're trying to fill that void in their life with all sorts of things. And Peter had it right. You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter articulated his choice. He made a choice to follow Christ. Some people walked away from Jesus and others stayed with him. Jesus Christ is really the essential point of every man's destiny. It's the crux of every man's destiny. The choice is made at the crossroads of Jesus Christ, whether you choose life or whether you choose death. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14. The choice is a clear-cut one. He doesn't blur the lines. He's not trying to do something magical here. There are only two choices. And from our text, we see one's narrow and one's wide. The narrow way and the wide way. There's no other alternative. Now, what is he comparing here? What's the contrast he's comparing? A narrow way and a wide way? There's been a lot of different viewpoints on this. A lot of people have interpreted Matthew 7, 13 to 14 to say, well, the narrow way is the way of Christianity, which goes to heaven. And the broad way is, is the way of all the pagan gods, and that goes to hell. I would say here, and I would challenge you on that, I don't think Jesus is contrasting Christianity to openly immoral masses that are just willingly going to hell. I don't think he's making that contrast. I don't see that here. I really believe he's contrasting two belief systems. He's contrasting two kinds of religion. He's really contrasting... Not really religion and paganism, Christianity and paganism. That's, that's you know, not really what he's, he's doing here. Both roads 
And this is important to understand. Both of these roads have a placard above them saying, this way to heaven. Both of them do. It's just one is real and one is a facade. Satan doesn't mark the Broadway. This is the way to hell. You don't come to a point in your life and go, let's see, would I like to go to hell and be totally separated and, and burn forever and eternity apart from God and loved ones and everything? And, or would I like to go to heaven and experience the grace and love and forgiveness? I mean, I mean ultimately, that's the decision that's made, but it's not put out that way to us. Satan does not mark the way to hell. This is the way to hell. That wouldn't be very deceptive. It'd be like watching deal or no deal. And when the the participants looking up at those ladies holding those cases, you see right through the front case and you see the amount on the inside. You say, well, that wouldn't be any fun. Exactly. Satan deceives people to think that his way is the way to heaven. See, we're not looking at a contrast between righteousness and obvious unrighteousness. That's not what we're looking at here. We're looking at a difference, a discernment between divine righteousness and what? Human righteousness. I believe that's what he's trying to get across just because of who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the whole religious crowd of his day. In Luke 18.9, it says that the Pharisees are those who trusted in themselves that they were what? Righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That was their religion. That was their problem. But it was inadequate. The religion couldn't save them. No righteousness except for Christ alone will ever save us. Our own righteousness has no ability to save us. Every man makes a choice. Are you going to trust in your own righteousness? Are you going to trust in the righteousness that's available to you through Jesus Christ? See, either you think you're good enough now on your own, and through your own little system of religion that you've created like they did, and somehow that's going to get you to heaven, maybe you're trusting in that this morning. Or the other hand, you know that you're not good enough. And your righteousness would never get you to heaven. And your religion would never meet the requirements of a holy God. And so you come to God, the holy God, and you cast yourself at his feet and ask for his mercy and his grace. And you ask him to save you. Those are the only two systems of religion in the world. They all boil down to those two. Divine righteousness or human righteousness. It's that simple. But Jesus is saying here that both roads are marked this way to heaven. One is a narrow road of divine righteousness. The other one is the broad road of human righteousness. See, back in Jesus' time, the Jewish leaders of his time, the religious leaders of his time, they really believed that somehow if you were good enough, you'd get to heaven. They looked at their heritage, Abrahamic heritage and circumcision and all these external things that they came up with. And they looked at these things that they were keeping the law that they created. And they said, hey, this is going to get us to heaven. And so when Paul in Romans 3.20 shocked them by saying, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. That blew them out of the water. They thought, what are you saying? That's what our religion is all about. It's about our own righteousness. And he said in verse 19 that the law came that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. See, the law was given not to save us, but to what? Show us our sinfulness. When you look at the true law of God and you begin to look at that, you're going, man, I'm coming up wanting every day. That's what I appreciate about the ministry of Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron and those out there preaching the true gospel. They say, you know what? You want to share the gospel with somebody, you don't share some fluffy little message with them. You point them and you direct them to the sinfulness of their heart. And you say, well, that's not going to win a lot. No, it may not. 
Because people don't like to admit that they're sinners. But that's what this whole passage is saying. That way is narrow. There's not going to be a lot of people that respond to that kind of message. I mean, the message that we see a lot thrown around today, that this, this easy believism, cheap grace kind of thing, you know, just sign on the dotted line, raise your hand, and hey, welcome to the king. That's a lie. That's not what salvation is about. It's easy to do. You're talking to somebody with, who you know has not trusted Christ as their Savior. Just take them to the couple of the commandments. You know, hey, have you ever told a lie? Oh, yeah. What's that make you? And if it, if, first, they'll be kind of resistant. What are you saying? Well, what, if, you're, if you told a lie, what does that mean? A liar, I guess. Okay. Next step, you know. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value that's not yours? I mean, if I ever t- stole anything? Yeah. Well, once when I was, okay, so now you're telling me you're a thief. Have you ever thought a thought about lustful thought toward another woman or man, whatever? Well, yeah, I've done that. Well, Jesus said that if you do that in your heart, you're, you're an adulterer by heart. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, yeah, all the time. Well, then you're a blasphemer. So by your own admission, you're telling me you're a lying, stealing, adulterous blasphemer. And one day you're going to stand before a holy God and say, I think I'm okay. <laughs> I don't think so. And see, that kind of message begins to help people realize, whoa, I am in a little bit of trouble here. See, and once they get to that point and they, they realize that, that's when you take the gospel of Christ and you say, you know what? But it doesn't have to stop there. You don't have to fret about this tonight when you go to sleep. You can take care of it right now because it's already been taken care of on the cross. God has made a way out of him judging you and holding you accountable for your sin because Christ paid the, the, the ultimate price and all of our sin was laid upon him and you need to come to Christ and trust in him. And these sins will be forgiven. But when the self-righteous, ego-centered man saw that he was sinful by the standards of the law, what did they do? What did the Pharisees do? Did they say, oh, gee, now we really need God? No, they said, you know what? We don't like this law. We're going to make up one of our own. And so they started creating all these laws that they could keep. Can't carry a stick on the Sabbath unless it weighs so much and you can't carry it so far. And they'd look at that and say, oh, look at what we do. You know what? That's not too far from a lot of times what we do today in church. We have people coming to the church. It's great. But you know what? There's a tendency, if they haven't committed their lives to Christ, they begin to learn Christianity up here. They learn the language. They get used to the songs. They begin to feel a little comfortable. That conviction of sin that was first there when they entered that building that they thought, boy, maybe the roof would fall in, and it didn't, kind of begins to wear off. And after a while, they just feel like, hey, one of the crowd. And Satan leads them down that deceptive path to think, well, yeah, you don't have to go all the way. You don't really have to commit your life to Christ. Just go to church. Coming to church never saved anybody, beloved. And so when Christ came, he set their law straight in their mind. He said, it's not just about going out and committing an act of adultery physically. What are you thinking in your heart? It's a matter of the heart. And what happened in Jesus' day, the Pharisees' righteousness became dependent on human achievement, what they could do. I mean, I was raised in a church, and that's what we believed in. It's what you could do. You know, if you did more things for the church, well, then you kind of reached a higher level. Or when you died, you know, you, you wouldn't be in kind of limbo too long. You know, they'd pray you out or whatever. They still have masses in my hometown parish there in Torresville, Pennsylvania, Our Lady of Lords for my mother. Lighting candles, you know, because we gave an endowment to the church, so they got to do this for years. And in their mind, they think somehow that every time they do this, somehow my mom's getting closer to heaven. That's a lie from the pit of hell. No such thing the Bible speaks about. When you die, you go one of two places. Either you're ushered in the presence of the Lord or you're ushered into hell for eternity. 
There's no second door. There's no second chance. And that's what Christ is bringing us to here. He's bringing us to that ultimate decision. And see, the Lord's purpose in preaching the Sermon on the Mount wasn't to give us a bunch of feel-good things. Oh, you know, blessed are those who mourn. No, He was trying to break that kind of religious system. He was trying to break their backs, their own right, their self-righteousness. He showed them that human achievement doesn't work. And He gave them all this information, and now He brings them to a point, and He says, you know what? What are you going to do about this? Remember, we looked at last week, I think it was, or the week before, in Luke 18, the Pharisee prayed on the corner, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I mean, can you just hear the self-righteousness dripping off that guy's lips? Not once did he ever express a need for God. He didn't think he had any needs because of how good he was. Near him, a man that didn't even feel worthy to draw near pounded his breast and he cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the kind of prayer that God wants us to hear, to pray. That's the kind of prayer that he will hear and he will answer. Jesus said, that man, the man that beat his breast and said, I'm not even worthy, save me, Lord. He's the one that went home justified, not the religious Pharisee. And some people get to a point and they say, well, yeah, I know I've lived a bad life and I'm going to hell and that's it. And they stop there. God wants you, He doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to be separated from Him for eternity. He created you. He loves you. He, He gave you a way out. It'd be like going on a mountain path and one path says, do not enter, cliff, danger, don't go there, you'll die. And you're walking down the path going, well, I don't care, I'm going anyway. It'd be that silly. God has clearly set the path before us. The Jewish leaders thought that they were on their way to heaven. But Jesus Christ focused them to reconsider. And he said, now that you've reconsidered, I want you to make a decision. Every one of us has to make that decision. And the choice is crystallized here. He says, basically in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, there are two gates. You have the wide, the narrow. There's two ways, the broad and the narrow. There's two destinations, life and destruction. There's two groups of travelers, the few and the many. And then in the rest of the chapter, as we work our way through this, you're going to see more contrast. In verses 16 to 20, there's two kinds of trees, the good and the corrupt. There's two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. Verses 24 and 27 says there's two kinds of builders. The wise and the foolish. There's two kinds of foundations. The rock and the sand. There's also two kinds of houses and two elements of the storm and so forth. It's such a clear-cut decision. He's bringing this whole thing to a climax. And Jesus doesn't want to applaud at the end of his sermon. He doesn't want a bouquet of flowers for his ethics. He wants a decision. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's funny because, you, you know, you get through with a message and generally I'll go back to the door and, you know, you stand there and you shake hands and, and, you know, you people are always very too gracious, I think, sometimes because sometimes I'm back there going, I don't even know what I said up here, you know, if it made any sense. And, you know, some of you come by, oh, wonderful sermon. And, you know, and in my heart, I mean, I love those encouraging words. Don't get me wrong because I need all the encouragement I can get because just to get up there is a, a big thing for me. But, you know, sometimes I'm wondering, are they saying that? Are they really getting it? Because, see, if you're not getting it, if, if, if the Word of God doesn't transform your life somehow, it's all for naught. Let's just go home and watch football or baseball or whatever on TV. Coming out to church, that doesn't mean anything unless our hearts and our lives are transformed by the Word of God. It's not about me. It's not about my personality. It's about the Word of God that we're looking and we're reading and we're applying to our lives. That's where the power is, to transform us, to make us different than when we first came in here. He forces us to make that decision. Jesus doesn't want people to postpone applying these requirements. He wants a response. And sometimes I want to stop and say, well, 
what part of the message touched your heart? But I'm kind of afraid to do that because I'm thinking, what if they, well, I really like that illustration of Mason and, you know, the glue on his butt. And I'm thinking, that's all you got? (laughs) There's four contrasts here. and We're just going to look at the the first two or the first one here uh, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says in verse 13, Enter in at the narrow gate, for wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And verse 14 says, Narrow is the gate which leads unto life. You notice there, he mentions the narrow gate twice and the wide gate once. There's two gates. Only two gates. That's it. Both roads, I believe, say that they point to salvation. They point to God. Both of them say that they point to the kingdom, the glory and blessing. There's not one road that says, this is the way to hell and this is the way to... No, they they both say, hey, yeah, go this way. One road is the the route of self-righteousness. The other way is the road of divine righteousness. See, but before you get on this road... Before you get on the path, you have to go through one of these gates. That's the illustration that he's using. So let's look at the first gate. We're going to discuss the gates first and look at the narrow gate. And because this really, to understand this text, you have to understand the narrow gate. The broad gate just kind of falls into place after you understand what he's talking about when he says the narrow gate. Well, there's... Six things that I want us to look at here concerning the narrow gate. First of all, in verse 13, he says, enter. He says, enter in at the narrow gate. This is a command from Jesus Christ. You must enter the gate. You're not going to be on the road, either one, until you enter. But he commands us to enter the narrow gate. He doesn't say, well, look at the two gates and take a choice, and whichever one you like. No, he he commands us, beloved, to enter the narrow gate. And there's a sense of urgency here in the original language. It's in the aorist imperative, and it demands action right away. Have you ever went to an amusement park or a ball game, and you're kind of excited to get in there, and they have those turnstile things, and somebody's up there, and they got coolers, and they got all sorts, and they're backing up the whole crowd? All right? And you kind of have an urgency. When you get to one of those things, you know, you want to make sure you got everything and you slip through quickly so people behind you are, hey, hurry up, you know. There's an urgency to get into the game or get into wherever you want. That's the same kind of urgency here. He says, enter now. This is the time. This is what God is calling. You must do it. It's not an option. It's a command. Clearly. And this was a real challenge to the Jews of Jesus' day. The Lord Jesus has been teaching his Jewish listeners about a very narrow way of life. All the way through the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking, well, here's what you believe, but here's what God says. And at every juncture, he takes what they believe, this broad, kind of just liberal, do whatever you want kind of thing, just keep these rules, you'll be okay. And he always boiled it down and said, no, this is what God says. And it was always boiled down to a point where you couldn't do it unless you were trusting in God. Their way of life tolerated sin. They had all kinds of evils and and, and laws and standards and everything that went beyond those of God. They invented their own religious system. And Jesus told them, you know what? You've got to get rid of that system because this is the way. That's not the way. He narrowed down the way a person should live so that by the time he came to Matthew 12, he presented a very confined approach to living to the glory of God. You look out and you see how you want other people to treat you and you treat them that way, irrespective of how they're going to treat you. His audience understood what he was talking about when he said narrow, a very prescribed way. According to the end of of chapter 7, verse 29, he says, they said that he taught them as one having authority. One having authority. He just didn't merely quote their forefathers or quote some fancy palms or or anything like that. He explained the specifics of God's law to them in a way that convicted their hearts. And compared to their Judaistic, self-righteous religious system, his way was very narrow. It was very constricted. He said they must enter the narrow way if they wanted to be in his kingdom. And he demanded immediate action. 
He gave an absolute command without any alternative. See, it's, it's not enough, beloved, to listen to preaching about the gate. It's not enough to walk up to the gate and, oh, look at the hinges and, oh, that's where the key goes. Oh, this is a beautiful gate. That, that's not good enough. That's not going to get you on the path to righteousness. You have to enter the gate. Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom unless you come to it on his terms. You must abandon your self-righteousness. As we've seen in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, we must come to Christ as a beggar in spirit. Matthew 5.3 We must come as we're mourning over our sin. Matthew 5.4 We must come meek before a holy God. Matthew 5.5 5. We must come hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In Matthew 5.6 Those are His terms. See, hell will be full of people that admire the gate. Hell will be full of people that admire Jesus Christ. Hell will be full of people that admire this sermon, the the Sermon on the Mount. Because they never entered. They never took what Jesus said and put it in their heart. They never were broken over their sin. So you have to enter. That's the first thing. Second thing... Not only must you enter, but he he commands us to enter the narrow gate. He says there is a wide gate, but he doesn't tell us to enter that. Because it leads to destruction. We serve a loving God. He created us. He wants us to spend eternity with him. But if you're going to be in the kingdom, if you're going to be one of his children, if you're going to come to Christ, you have to go through the narrow gate. You can't just admire it. It's a very narrow gate. And some people complain. They say, well, Christianity doesn't leave you know, any room for anybody else's views. That's exactly right. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. And it's not because Christians are selfish and egotistical and, and think that they're better than everybody else, but God has only given one way for man to be saved. Right? Through His Son, Jesus Christ. He didn't say there, there are 58 ways. If there were 58 ways, then we'd preach all 58 ways. Because we want people. We want men and women and children to come to Christ. But he said there's only one way. And that's through his son, Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is salvation found in any other. There's no other name given under heaven among men, whereby what? We must be saved. Who's the name he's talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 6, I'm the bread of life. He said in Matthew 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way. In John 10, he says that he is the door of the sheep. And he that enters not by the door but climbs up some other way is the same as the thief and the robber. In other words, you're not going to get it that way. There's no other way. There's no back door to heaven. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. These are God's words. They're not my words. Christ is the only way to salvation. And the way is narrow. There's no alternatives. You must enter by an act of the will, an act of faith. You have to enter on God's terms by God's prescribed gate. Christ is the gate. He's the only way. And because God is God and we're not, He has the right to determine the basis of salvation. And He's determined that it's through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So the next time you hear one of these preachers on Larry King saying, Well, I don't know, Larry, maybe there's many ways, you know, I'm just concerned. Don't buy it. Third thing is not only must you enter the narrow gate, but thirdly, you must enter the gate alone. You must enter it alone. And the fact is implied in the text. That word narrow there gives the idea that the gate is so narrow, it just allows for one. As I already mentioned, a turnstile, a lot of commentators say that, you know, that's kind of what, what in our modern day vernacular, what we can think of, a turnstile. You know, when you go to a ball game, or most recently when we were back in Florida, we went to Will's deployment for his ship, very secure area, you know, the boat, the big destroyers going out and all the families are there all the children are there very you know 
emotional time. I mean, you know, their moms or dads are leaving for eight to nine months, and here are kids and families on the, the dock there, this big dock. And, and I remember when we got there, we just kind of walked up to the boat. I mean, there was a fence there, but the gates were huge. They were all open. And we just kind of went in and, and, you know, after a period of time, said our goodbyes. He got up on the boat and everybody waved and eventually they, they pulled off. And after about a half hour, finally the ship was kind of out of sight and we turned to go and several people were left there and pushing stuff back to go back to the car. Well, the gate was closed. Chained. And I'm thinking, oh, great, we're stuck here on this dock. How do we get out of here? Because, oh, no, we got to go down here. There's a secure gate. We made our way down probably, I don't know, eighth of a mile or something, and there's another gate there. But it wasn't just an open gate. It had a turnstile on it. And it was a tight fit. You got to go through, even the kids had to go through one at a time. And if a group of people were in a hurry to go through that thing, there's no way. You would have to go through one at a time. See, there's no group corporate thing here. People don't come to the kingdom of God in, in, in groups doesn't happen see the jewish people thought that they were all on the on the kingdom road to heaven just because of who they were because of their heritage they just thought yeah we're all gone together some people think well yeah isn't the whole church going to be going to heaven well it depends what you mean by the church you mean by those who've placed their faith and trust in christ yes the whole church will be going to heaven if you mean just by people that come to church, no. Christ came back right now and we were called out of here and, and we were raptured up. I guarantee you some of us would, well, hopefully not us, but some of you would still be sitting there. I know I wouldn't be because I put my faith, my trust in Christ. But you can't think of that. It could happen any day, any time. But you're not going to be saved just because you're part of a group. It's not good enough to be part of a group. Salvation is individual. People have never been saved in pairs. Now, sometimes somebody gets saved and somebody else gets saved because of their salvation. You know, you see what God has done in their world. That's fine. But it's still exclusive. It's still personal. And that's a hard concept for us to understand because we do everything, basically, in a crowd. We do everything in a group. That's part of our social, the way we're, we're raised. And yet Christ says, to come into my kingdom, you're going to have to make this decision by yourself. You have to enter the gate by yourself. You have to enter the gate alone. And to a lot of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, that meant saying goodbye to their friends, maybe leaving their their family, leaving all the the, the culture that they had. It It was a cost. It's not enough for a person to say, well, you know, I was just born in a Christian family, and I guess just all my life I've gone to church. Whenever I ask somebody, you know, hey, what's your testimony? You know, when did you come to Christ? And whenever the words, well, I've always been a Christian. Man, my red flags go up all over the place. I'm not saying you have to have a time and date. Some people came to Christ at a young age and you just see Christ actively working in your life. That's great. But for some people, it's just something that they thought they inherited from mom and dad. It doesn't work that way. People don't come into the kingdom in groups. They come by an individual act of faith. And that's on you and you alone. You must enter by the narrow gate and you must enter it alone. And it's a very difficult process to get through this narrow gate. That may sound shocking to hear that. You mean it's hard for people to get into heaven? Yes, it is. We, we can't understand that today because of, of everything that's preached in the church. We always hear that it's easy to get saved. Some people say that all you have to do is just believe, just raise your hand, sign on the dotted line, whatever, and just do you know, you're Now you're in heaven. See, the problem comes is when people think that they're saved because of something they have done. I remember in camp when I raised my hand and committed my life to Christ. Well, what has Christ done since then? Well, yeah, no, I'm on drugs now and I'm sleeping with every girl out there. And, you know, I don't know, but I made that commitment, so I think I'm saved. No, you're not saved. Sorry. It doesn't work that way. It's not that kind of an easy believism. And I think it's scriptural when I say that. I think scripture points and says that we have to search wholeheartedly for this gate. It's not like we're just walking down the road, oh, there's the broad gate, oh, there's the narrow gate over there. No, I think Scripture indicates that it has to be searched for because in, in Matthew seven fourteen, what's it say at the end? It says, few there be that what? Find it. 
If they find it, they have to be searching. That implies that people aren't even going to know about the narrow way unless they're looking for it. God said through an Old Testament prophet in Jeremiah 29, 13, you know this verse, you shall seek me and find me when you search me with what? All your heart. You have to search for it wholeheartedly. Nobody got up in the morning and slipped and fell and boom, popped into the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen that way. It's not that easy to be saved. Fewer find that. Fewer are those who find that narrow way. And not only do you have to search wholeheartedly, but you have to strive wholeheartedly. Turn over to Luke 13. Luke 13. In verse 22, Luke 13, we see... It says there that he went through the cities and villages, speaking of Jesus, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And from verse 23, you can kind of see that uh, um, the people who were with him realized that, that not everyone was responding to his teaching. Because one said to him, Lord, are there few to be saved who are saved? It's always hard for us to understand why people don't come to Christ. It's just hard for us to understand that as believers. And so one of the people with Jesus said, Man, why aren't these people being saved? There's few that be saved. And the answer that the Lord gave implied why, indeed, few become saved. He says in verse 24, he says, Strive to enter what? At the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter in what? Not be able. See, that word strive has the idea of agonizing over something. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 to speak of athletes who are agonizing to win a victory. In Colossians 4.12, it's used in, in these words, laboring fervently. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, it talks about the aspect of fighting for something. In other words, what the Lord is saying, that going through the narrow gate is agonizing. It demands fervent striving. And he continued in Luke 13, 24, he says, For many, I say unto you, will enter to seek and will not be able to. So it's difficult to be saved for two reasons. First of all, you've got to seek out the narrow way. Secondly, even though many are seeking, once they find out what it costs them to enter that gate, they're not willing to do it. You don't become a Christian just because you raised your hand or walked down an aisle. It doesn't work that way. Matthew eleven twelve says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and, and violent and the violent take it by force. It's those who earnestly strive to enter the kingdom. Those are the ones that are going to get it. In Luke sixteen sixteen, the Lord said the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. See, that's not what we hear today in a lot of modern churches. But that's what Jesus taught. The kingdom is for those who seek it with their whole hearts. It's for those who agonize to enter it. It's, their hearts have to be shattered over their sinfulness. The kingdom is for those who mourn in meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness and long for God to change their lives. It's not for people to come along in a cheap way and just want Jesus to meet their felt needs and what can he do for me? That's not what we're talking about here. We can't sleep our way into the, the kingdom. We have to make an earnest endeavor and, and display energy and, and, and untiring effort to do it. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, In the world you, you will have what? Tribulations. It's not easy to become a Christian because Satan and his demons and the whole world forces are against us constantly. The power of God, we have to overcome Satan. We have to overcome the flesh to enter the kingdom. And one of Satan's, I believe, worst lies today in the church is that it's, it's just easy. The Bible says you have to enter through the narrow gate by yourself, agonizing over your sinfulness. You have to be broken in spirit. Some may say, well, that sounds like the Pharisees, you know. If you're all that, then aren't you just kind of earning your own way? No. Because it's, it's because you come with a broken spirit. You recognize that you can't do this on your own. 
You're not putting your faith in your energy to do this. You're putting your faith in Christ to do it through you. In your brokenness, you, you pour out your heart to Him and He saves you. You must enter the gate alone. You must also enter the gate unencumbered. You ever notice you can't go through one of those turnstile things carrying a bunch of bags? You know, I said we had a bunch of stuff with us. We had a, a, a baby cart that I was pushing and, and bags and all sorts of things because we were there for probably two and a half hours on this dock waiting for Will's ship to go. And when we turned around to go back to the car, the, the big gates were closed. And we had to make our way down to this little turnstile. And I got this, you know, I'm pushing this big two-seat baby cart thing, or what do you call them, strollers. And, uh, you know, and I'm pushing this thing, and I'm thinking, okay. And everybody's going through, and I'm like looking at Crystal like, ah, oh, you just going to leave me here? Do I throw it over the fence? What do we do here? And she goes, we'll just fold it up. And I'm like, okay, this, this is not going to happen. But So I folded it up, and I'm thinking, there's no way I can get in this turnstile carrying this thing. It's not going to work. And so I had to kind of put it in and turn the thing and then get in behind it. I got my hands through the thing and I'm walking it through, you know. It was crazy. It was very difficult to get through that thing holding this baby carriage. And same thing here. The gate is narrow. It's the gate of self-denial. It doesn't admit a bunch of superstars who want to carry their own baggage, their own garbage into the kingdom of God. You need to strip out all your self-righteousness, your sin, or you don't go through. That's why in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler came to the gate and he found Jesus and he said, Good master, what, what do I have to do to be saved? Remember, how, do I, how can I inherit eternal life? And the Lord went right to the heart of the problem. He said, If you'll be perfect, if you're perfect, that's great. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And Jesus hit the rich young ruler right, right at the heart of the problem, right in his suitcase. He had a suitcase. Hey, well, I want to go to the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, No, you can't carry that stuff with you. He was trying to get through a narrow gate, but he had the baggage of his riches. He also had the baggage of his self-righteousness because he thought he was perfect. The young ruler couldn't get through the narrow gate with his money and his self-righteousness. In verse 22 of that text in Matthew 19 says that he went away sorrowful. Saw the gate, he recognized the gate, he didn't enter it because he didn't go through unencumbered. See, if you didn't go through the narrow gate the way you're supposed to, then you're on the wrong road. You're on the wrong road. It doesn't matter if the road said, hey, this way to heaven, because that's just a deception. When we come to Christ, there must be a jettisoning of ourself. In Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said that, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. If I asked you to give me one characteristic that every little child has, doesn't matter if they're boy or girl. You know, when they're a little baby, one characteristic that they have, I bet you you would end up on utter dependency. That's a characteristic that they have. They're dependent on their mothers. There's a song or a poem, I think it's a song, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Saving grace is not just an act of the mind. It involves stripping self in utter nakedness. It, it says to God, you know what, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no other way. I need your grace. I need your mercy in my life. There's nothing wrong with believing and praying. But we shouldn't always make it so easy. Because just believing... And praying doesn't bring you to Christ in a vacuum. God has to be working in the person's heart. It's a work of God that causes someone to come to Christ. Becoming saved involves a difficult and radical admission that you're a sinful person and you cannot stand before a holy God. That's a big step for everybody. But once you make it, you realize, wow, what was I thinking before? Fifthly, you must enter the narrow gate, not only unencumbered, but repentantly. In other words, you can't go through the gate unless you, your heart is repentant. What do I mean by that? You, you must turn from your sin and turn to God. When John the Baptist was exhorting people to receive the Messiah, many people came to him and to be baptized because they wanted to have their sins cleansed. And, you know, the, the Jewish people knew that preparing for the Messiah meant purging the heart of its sinfulness. 
Spurgeon said this, You and your sins must separate, or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like the Canish kings from the caves and be hanged up in the sun. You must turn from your sin to God. That's what repentance is. Now, does that mean that after we're a Christian, we live these perfect lives? No. We're constantly going back to the Lord and saying, God, I'm sorry, I blew it again. You know, thank you for your forgiveness. And, you know, fill me again with your spirit. But we have to come in repentance. You also have to come in utter surrender. In utter surrender. You have to come to the narrow gate in total abandonment to Christ. I don't believe that a person can be regenerate by adding Jesus Christ to his or her life. See, salvation is not taking Jesus and adding it to your own agenda. Well, now I got Jesus, I'll just fit him in here with everything else. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is God coming down and transforming you into a brand new person in Christ. So therefore, all the priorities, everything that was in your life is transformed. And you're a brand new person with new desires. That's the whole message of, of 1 John. If you want to know if you're saved, if you want to know if you're redeemed, if, you're, if you're, you've trusted Christ, does your life manifest a transformation? Well, what is that transformation? You know what? You'll confess your sin. You'll live in obedience to Christ. It'll become a characteristic in your life. You'll manifest love. Does that mean you're perfect? No. But salvation is always marked by a changed life. Some of you may be sitting here today and say, well, gee, I remember when I came, I guess I came to Christ. You know, my mom and dad said I did, but I haven't really seen any of this stuff, any change in my life. Jesus said in John 8, 31, I can tell who my true disciples are, for you obey my what? Word. Do you have a desire to obey the word of God? Have you seen him transform your life? If you think that you're a Christian and there's no sign of obedience in your life, you better, <laughs> you better wake up. Because you may not be a Christian. You may be trusting in your own self-righteousness. You may even be trusting in religious activity. That doesn't make you a Christian. Even though the road points to heaven, may point to Jesus, without obedience, you're not on the right path. That's the narrow, the narrow gate. And, you know, you don't even have to go to the wide gate. It's just the opposite. It's the obvious contrast Everyone can go through the wide gate. It's wide. Everybody. You don't have to go through the gate alone. You can go through with everybody. There's nothing individualistic about it at all. There's no self-denial expected. You can bring all the baggage and luggage you want. All your immorality, your lack of repentance, your lack of commitment to Christ. Hey, it's a wide gate. Come on. Let's have, just have a free-for-all. See, there are many people who claim to be Christians who are totally self-indulgent. And they're on that broad path. All you have to do is turn on the TV and see some of these guys on TV that claim to be preachers and teachers of the Word of God. Scary. Filled with pride, they're filled with self-righteousness, self-indulgent, all kind of sins on this broad road. So those are the two gates. And next week we're going to look at the two ways that those gates lead to. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would open their heart to see their need of a Savior. Lord, we know from your word that we cannot trust in ourselves. This is not a game of tennis. It's not something that silly. It's something that's very serious. One day we will leave this earth and there's only one of two places that we're going to go. Heaven or hell. And we're at the crossroads here this morning. We're at a place where you have given us the opportunity to make the choice which gate will we enter? The gate that leads to life through Christ or the gate that leads to death and punishment through our own self-righteous acts? Father, that, that choice is out there. I pray that if anybody here has not made the correct choice, the choice of life, the choice of Christ, the choice of trusting His, His work on the cross for our own righteousness, that righteousness is put on us because we don't have any righteousness of our own. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. If there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, I pray that they would understand the urgency, 
This isn't just an act. It's not. It's 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 a, it's a real urgency. There's a, there's a real decision to be made here, and it's serious. It's not something to be put off. I pray that they would cry out to you in the quietness of their heart this morning. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. I don't even understand everything yet, but God, I know that I've sinned in my life and, and, I, and I, I know that I can't pay for my own sin. You don't want me to pay for my own sin. You want what's best for me. You want me to put my faith and trust in Christ. I pray that you would pray that prayer this morning. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And for us believers, I pray that we would never forget the gate which we entered through and what's required. It's not an easy way. It's not easy to be a Christian in this world we live in. We need to be dependent upon you each and every day to do that work through us. To be kind and loving and reaching out to those who have yet to hear the gospel of Christ. To be patient. Father, we can't do that on our own. We have to depend on you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work through us, in us and through us. And we thank you for our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' glorious and precious name. Amen.